Welcome, Impactful Parents. It's time for the Impactful Parenting Podcast, where I give you parenting tips and resources to make you a more impactful parent to your school-aged child. I am your host, Christina Campos. Welcome, Impactful Parents. Today, we're going to be talking about supporting the communication needs of our children. Hello, my name is Christina Campos. I'm founder of The Impactful Parent, and I help parents of school-aged children turn their chaos into connection with their adolescent. I offer parent education videos every week, online courses, and coaching. And if that wasn't enough, I bring experts in on other fields onto The Impactful Parent stage to teach you even more. And today I have a special guest. Her name is Cerise Rivas Verdejo. And Cerise provides speech and language therapy, learning behavioral uh, remediation, and family child coaching virtually to families who know more is possible for their children and are looking for someone who will recognize and acknowledge their child's magic and helps them to be successful. I'm really excited to have her on today to talk about how do we support communication with our children. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I love it. Well, tell us a little bit to get started. All right. How can a parent know if their child even needs support with their communication skills? Well, a couple things. First and foremost, it's very rare for me to find a parent that hasn't already had some kind of inkling some inner knowing that's already like something's off, something isn't moving as quickly as I know is possible. Maybe there's a difference between this child and my oldest child, or I'm noticing how when they're at the playground, there's something that's maybe a little bit more challenging for them. They're not as engaged or as confident as as I think that would be really helpful and, and healthy. And so one of the first things I tell my parents is tap into your inner knowing. You're the expert of your child. You know them best. And don't let anyone tell you that, you're, that your concerns are unfounded and aren't valid. If you have them, there's nothing worth your peace of mind. Investigate and get more information. So what you're saying is that if we just have this inkling inside, then we should go ahead and push forward to investigating more. And then, exactly. well, what does that look like? Investigating more. So I would definitely recommend all parents to familiarize themselves with developmental milestones. When do motor development usually occur? Certain milestones, walking, talking, crawling. We often hear about that from our pediatricians, but there's also speech and language milestones. And what what I find is many parents think about maybe when they should start saying the first words or sentences, but there's so much more to speech and language than the words we use. There's also eye contact. There's the social skills. Social language is a language skill. There is comprehension. How does your child understand questions, understand instructions? Those are milestones for that. Let's say they did talk and they have some words or some sentences. Is it the level of robustness, of depth, of the vocabulary they're supposed to have for their age? There are guidelines for all of this depending on your child's age. And we can look into that. We can provide those information for parents so that they can have some more informed and educated choices moving forward. And then on top of that, it's also looking at watching them with other children. Are they engaging appropriately? Are they engaging confidently? 
And are they engaging independently? And those are the three things that I look for. Sometimes the kiddo has the, the skills appropriately with family, but not with people outside of family. It's like situation or context specific. Sometimes they are confident in one aspect of language in certain situations, but not others. And let's say they're pretty confident. They're, they have the skills, but then they're not independent. They rely on you a lot for you to nudge them along the way, for, you, for them to have their, their older brother or sister holding their hand. So if, if you're seeing kind of a, a lag or um, not the same level of development that where they have that independence in a way that's appropriate for their age and the expectations for their age, then that would be go ahead and look into this further. And there's multiple ways that parents can do this. They can receive a consultation. I provide consultations for families if they want to to review things. I offer them 45 minutes, $50 U.S., and what that involves is I observe them with a child. I talk to them through their concerns. I ask probing questions to see what exactly is uh, is happening so far, what, what types of interventions have already been attempted. And I give tailored and specific recommendations to see if maybe evaluation is recommended or not. If your child is going to a public school, public schools offer screenings. You can ask for your screening. This is one of the parent rights that you have. Many parents don't know their rights when it comes to special education services. So this is one of the things that I love to do is to let parents know, well, what are your rights? I provide mediation and advocacy in these meetings as well, so because especially for a lot of Hispanic families, I do this in English and Spanish, they often will say the teachers in the school know better. And then next thing you know, it's like, oh, I did have this inkling. I did have this inner knowing and I didn't listen to it because I thought that they knew better than me. They may have different training and experience than you, but no one knows better than you about your child. And so there are there are ways that you can get more information, even if you may be having some resistance from the schools. So this is such an important subject. And I'm just going to say it has been an impactful parent, okay, because I... I saw something a little off in one of my kids. I have four and I was told repeatedly by my pediatricians and different pediatricians that it was fine. It was okay that he wasn't really speaking um, because he had older siblings and I'm sure that they're talking for him and things like that. And then it came to a point where I was like, okay, now th this kid should be talking and Fortunately, I had the education background to be able to recognize that. And I pushed it as long as I could thinking, okay, the pediatrician has to know better than me, right? But in the end, I should have listened to my gut. I did get my son the help he needed. But other parents are going to hear this. They're going to feel in similar situations. And I know that you can't blanket it with a particular like, if they're showing this, then this is, you know, they need help. But can you give us a couple just examples of red flags that you see real common, let's say mm -hmm. between the ages of three and six, because those okay. are really developmental ages of speech and language. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's actually my specialty. So birth to six is most of my experience, even though I've worked with kids all the way through teenage adolescence and into young adulthood. Um, that's like where I shine because I, there's, a, there's something very powerful about early intervention. You are correct, Christina. 
the earlier we can get in there and get the support, the, the less likely it'll impact learning and their academic success, the less likely it'll be for them to have their confidence be undermined as well. So some red flags for like three to five-year-olds is they should already be answering simple what, who, where questions and between the ages of three to five. And then around toward the five-year range, they should already be answering some simple why questions like, oh, why do we put on our clothes? Well, it's cold outside, right? Or why, why is she eating the food? Oh, because she's hungry, starting to identify emotions, things like that. They should have vocabulary enough where they can know the groups of different semantic categories, like a couple of items that are food, they can list them, a couple of things that are clothing, furniture, that shows a variety of their vocabulary. I recommend at least five different groups and for them to know at least five different items within those groups by that age, in that age range. Now, when it comes to comprehension too, that's the other piece. It's not just about oral expression. They should be following two to three step directions. The older they are in that range of three to five, the longer the, the, the amount of steps that they can handle. So a, an example of that could be, okay, grab your coat and put it in your closet. That's two steps, they're related. Or in school, they're gonna be expecting three steps for a five-year-old where it's like, okay, grab your coat, put it in the in your cubby and go sit down and get ready for a circle time or something like that. So they are able to hold on to those three things and be able to follow those. And after a while, it's routine. That, that key piece about independence that I mentioned earlier is gonna be a factor. In school, they might just be following along with their peers and are they actually processing those instructions on their own? If they didn't have a, a friend doing it first, would they be able to follow those directions? Along those same lines, the other big time period when parents start really seeing language delays is that mm -hmm. third, fourth grade year when all of a sudden education becomes reading to learn and not reading for entertainment purposes. And then that's where, I mean, I've been a teacher for over 20 years. I taught all different grade levels. So I see this over and over again, but that's really when the the, the gaps start to emerge with communication and how good a child is in their language. It's during these second, third, fourth grade years because, yeah, you just start seeing those big gaps of the kids who have strong language skills and the kids that are just, it's their challenge. So some red flags, particularly within that age group. So one of the things that also happens during that age group is you start to have more diagnoses of learning disabilities because they may have the, the auditory comprehension, they're following directions fine. They may have the verbal expertise. They're even charismatic. They could be jokesters. And I have many of kids, students that I work with that that's exactly the case. And then you go into third grade when, like you said, they're reading to learn and the, those nonverbal challenges come in where they're having a hard time with spacing between letters when they're writing. They don't maybe even know consistently all of the letter sounds. So then it really becomes all the more challenging for them to have to read fluently to then comprehend what they're reading. Um, the writing skills are a big red flag around this age and they're relied upon more and more at this time. One of the things that are a red flag even before they get that is how are they sequencing the events of their life? Are they able to use present, past and future tense with ease? 
if they're retelling a, their what happened this past weekend, does it make sense when they're doing it? Because if a child isn't saying those events clearly, can they then write them clearly? Not likely. It's very hard for them to do that. And that's the expectation moving into third grade onward. They're doing a lot of summaries and retelling and sequencing events. And they even start doing some simple presentations in front of their classmates. And so then you start seeing these kiddos that felt very confident and sure of themselves with their perhaps oral language skills. Then they're like, wait a minute, I can't do this now with writing and with reading in the, at the level that I'm expected to. And it's unfortunate you start seeing them have, be less confident. Maybe they start not wanting to go to school as much or not quite as eager as they used to be because the exams are harder for them. And they're comparing themselves to their peers more around that age too. They're noticing those differences. I have a student that last year was in second grade, this year is in third grade. He has autism. And this year he's finally like, why am I getting pulled out of class so much? You know, he's noticing that well before he was just like, I'm going out of class. And now he's like, nobody else is taken out as much as me. What did I do something wrong? And then they start looking at what's wrong with me. And we have to really be very vigilant and conscious about presenting the services, the interventions, the supports in a way that it's like, it's absolutely nothing wrong with you. We all learn differently. We're all working on different things. And we want to make sure we have your back so you can shine and show us everything you know, because you know so much, right? And then like, okay, okay, I got it. So you have to keep, you can't assume that the one time you say it, that that's one and done. You have to keep addressing that with these kids, because this this is when you all of a sudden start noticing some of the confidence and self-esteem being impacted. I am so glad that you brought that up and that the red flag of suddenly the child not wanting to do homework, like all of a sudden refusing to do schoolwork, uh, the, the lack of enthusiasm of going to school, it certainly can be a red flag. And I want parents to know that. And again, ask me how I know had a kid just like that. I have uh, another child, not what I was talking about previously, who's highly dyslexic. And, you know, that journey with that kid trying to make sure that he had full confidence on who he was and not allowing the dyslexia to not only hold him back, but also to mentally not hold him back, that he is just as capable as everybody else in the classroom. Um, and that's a journey that these parents can start to go on depending on what's going to happen with their kid. But what about children who are bilingual? Is What kind of speech delays would you see with them that are not red flags so that parents can identify those? So that are not red flags. Well, one of the things that are key when you are considering if it's a challenge, if it's a language difference versus language disorder, that's what a lot of clinicians are not trained to do unless they've done a lot of specific specialized training. This is one of my specialties and something that I'm very, very passionate about given my personal experiences with my siblings. They were told a lot of things were related to, oh, it's just because you're, you're bilingual and you're learning Spanish and English together. And it wasn't. They had, my brother had a hearing loss that was affecting his, his speech and language skills and his clarity of speech. My sister had um, stuttering uh, and it was in both languages. And so the key thing to notice is, is the, is the difficulties showing up in both languages or just one? If a child is is let's say stuttering in one language versus the other, then it's not actual stuttering. It's that they're having a harder time retrieving those words in that one language that they're stuttering. 
for if it's that they are following directions in one language really well and not in the other, that again means that it's just that they're learning the vocabulary necessary to follow those directions in the language that they're not following those directions well in yet. It's coming. It's coming around the corner. More practice and you'll be able to do it. Um, same thing goes with expression. I've heard this with articulation too, which is how you pronounce sounds. If a child is pronouncing certain sounds clearly in, let's say, English and not in Spanish, then that means that there that it, it depends on the sounds, actually. There are certain sounds that occur in both languages. There are certain sounds that occur in, I don't want to assume that, that your listeners are actually only Spanish and English speaking. It could be Swahili in English. It doesn't matter. If you look at the sounds that both languages have in common, those are the only sounds that you can actually evaluate and say, okay, these are the ones that this child should be able to do because they occur in both in both languages. If all of a sudden they can't pronounce the sounds in one language, it depends on their exposure to that language, their models that they have for that language, and the same goes for the second one or the third one. I had a child that was exposed to four languages in their home. And so one of the things that I told the parents was what, who is, is the most proficient in each one? And they should be the channel, the leader, the go-to for that language, instead of somebody trying to provide a not as strong model in a language that they're not as proficient in. That actually is doing a disservice to the child to do that. And parents do it all the time with the best of intentions. I know why they're doing it. But sometimes it's because they're being told either directly or indirectly that their language at home isn't as valuable as the school language. Please don't listen. <laughs> it's a lie. You're actually not confusing your child by speaking your home language, especially if that's the language that you are, that you can provide a strong, good modeling. Um, so there are certain things like that, that if it's, if you see it, that's not something to worry about. If you see it where it's in one language versus the other, don't worry about it. Now, if it's something where they're having vocabulary delays in both, difficulties following directions in both, stuttering in both, all these different things, then yes, that's when you want to ask for a screening, a consultation. You can ask the schools for an evaluation, and it's within your rights. As soon as you ask for a meeting with the special ed team in your school, they have a certain number of days before they have to have that meeting. So a lot of parents don't know that, and they wait. Or they, or they let themselves be um, dissuaded from having these meetings and these discussions. I'm so glad we're bringing that up again, because just like how I was told, oh, it's the older siblings talking for them. You know, I could, it just, I hear it all the time about bilingual kids. Oh, they're just not catching on because they're learning two languages at the same time. And so mm -hmm. I'm so glad you had that clarification for my audience. Now I'm going to ask you, what are some specific things that a parent can do to support their child's communication needs? So one of them that I love is goes back to one of your points you mentioned about your child, which was really building up their confidence. What do they do well? And actually taking into account, given that you're the expert of your child, how do they seem to process information best? I love using multi-sensory cues, using as many senses as possible when I'm giving directions, when I'm modeling a new vocabulary. I'm like, maybe it's the Latina in me. I'm constantly gesturing and moving and dancing and singing. And so the more you incorporate all of that, instead of it just being a dry, monotone direction, the more you're going to see, okay, 
how is this, what kind of cues does my child need? So for instance, with there's a lot of times where you'll do a, a verbal direction with a gesture and you're pointing like, oh, put it over, put it under the table or on the, or um, yeah, put it under the table or on the chair or something like that, you're gesturing. But what if you actually grab their hand while you're doing it, especially these little kids? You can, those three to five-year-olds, if they're not quite doing it, they might not even be following your point. So you're doing all these gestures and visual support, but if they're not following it, it doesn't work. So they may need more of a motor kinesthetic cue to follow what these directions. And then over time, you can fade it away. I do a lot of things with pre-academic skills and academic skills where I add in different textures. Like I had a kiddo that they could not get the letters, names and letter sounds at all. And we had to do and trace it on sandpaper. And they would, instead of writing it with a pencil, they weren't feeling the texture, the bumpity bump, the same way with the pencil as they did when they were tracing it with their finger on sandpaper over and over again. But this kid was a very tactile and motor kinesthetic kiddo. They needed the movement. I have another kiddo where we work on, on, on sounding out things. And instead of just the gestures along the arm and on the chest that a lot of schools are doing now, which I love because that was not the case. 10, 15 years ago, we actually do yoga. There's a yoga pose for each letter in the alphabet. And man, did this kid, he's super athletic. He, he, he's, his physical development was like years ahead. So I know this about him. The parents know this about him. Why would I not use this beautiful strength of his to our advantage to help his academic skills and keep building up his confidence? So things like that. It's really looking at what are the ways that they strive and they really learn and the things that they've already learned, how did they learn them? And then how about generalizing it to these things that are a little bit more challenging for them? And that's only so far, it's gonna get better. And if a parent has concerns about their child's speech and language skills, what can they do then? I would educate yourself on, on topics like you're talking about in your podcast, your rights, different strategies, I would get a screening. I would get a screening or a consultation. I provide them, like I mentioned, you can get them from the schools as well. They're also available through clinics and hospitals. Okay, there's that's an option. You can go through insurance if you have insurance. Um, you don't actually need always a pediatrician's referral. It depends on your situation and your type of insurance. Um, you can go directly and ask for someone to screen your child without that. And sometimes some of my parents, they as legitimacy when they go back to the pediatrician, hey, I had someone observe my child. That's a speech language pathologist. That's a learning behavioral specialist. This is what they said. And um, you can even give the summary of notes to the pediatrician and it'll maybe grease the wheels a little bit to further along and, and speed along the process. And then, yes, you can ask for an evaluation at any time from your schools. You can get them through your referrals through your pediatrician as well. But the biggest thing is don't give up on what you know. Don't give up on your peace of mind. If it's something that's nagging at you, it's worth investigating and getting all the information possible so you can feel like you're the greatest advocate for your child that is out there. And you already are just adding this additional piece to it. I'm so excited that you are on today to help our parents who have a child that they're worried about with their speech and language skills. So how can they reach out to you and get more of you? Well, gosh, um, we're 
I'm definitely making sure that your listeners have available in English and Spanish. I have an ebook for your for your listeners. It's called Being a Different Possibility, and it's all about tapping into your child's magic so they can be more successful and happy. It's very important to 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 facilitate more academic, but also more social, emotional, and like that, emo especially the emotional and mental health. More and more, we're really seeing the impact on this on our kiddos. And it's it's what, something that I'm dedicated my life to, to improve. And anybody can email me at empoweringlightlanguage at gmail.com or go to my website, empoweringlightlanguage.com. That is perfect. For those of you who are listening, if you would like to get that freebie, it will be inside the Impactful Parent app. The Impactful Parent app is free to download and you will see it there underneath the all ages section of, um, of the app. So go get the free ebook, go reach out to Cities, and this is a wonderful, wonderful resource for parents. I'm glad that you are here. Thank you so much. I hope today's episode brought value to your day. And if you would like to become a more impactful parent, download the Impactful Parent app. The Impactful Parent app is free to download and full of episodes just like this one to help you in your parenting journey. Carry help, tips, and parenting resources right in your pocket so that you can refer to it whenever you need it most. Plus, when you download the Impactful Parent app, you're going to be joining a community of like-minded parents that are also just trying to be the best parent they can to their child. So download the app for free and discover new techniques to make your parenting more effective. Get parenting resources that are going to make your life easier and track your progress to help you be more accountable and intentional in your parenting. All of this plus so much more can literally be found right in your pocket. So download the app today. You got nothing to lose. It's free. So go to theimpactfulparent.com or your app store and discover how you can step up your parenting game and become a more impactful parent. But until next time, you got this, parents. I'm just here to help. Thank you for listening today. Remember to subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. And don't forget, the Impactful Parenting Podcast is an extension of the Impactful Parent community. Go to the Impactful Parent website and download the free Impactful Parent app so you don't miss a parenting tip that could help you and your family. Thanks for listening today. So go to theimpactfulparent.com and see you next episode.